Hi, this is Patrick O'Reilly from the Vintage Video Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 270, 24-hour movies. McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now this week we're going to take a look at some of our favorite 24-hour movies. So I should explain. These are movies where all the events take place over the course of a single day. You know, as opposed to those movies that that just feel like they're 24 hours long. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, before we get to our top five list this week, Derek, any pop culture that you've been able to take in this uh, past week, my friend? It's actually been two weeks since our last show. I was just going to say, yeah, it's been it's yeah. been two weeks. So I have a fairly long list, but I'll try to not dwell on uh, too much, too many of them t- for too long because some of them really sucked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I'll start with some new stuff. Sure. Had a couple of friends over on the weekend and nice. uh, we were like, oh, let's just watch a movie. And it was that whole thing where you're like, has anyone seen this and who wants to watch that? And after about 15 minutes, I finally just said, look, I don't care. Just pick something I haven't seen before. And they're like, oh, well, we like horror movies and there's all these new horror movies. So they had me watch this movie called The Boogeyman. And for a minute, I thought, is this a guy who's like into 70s disco? He's the boogeyman. And then it's like, no, no, it's like a horror movie. I'm like, OK, fine, whatever. And it's an older it, one, isn't it? Or is it new? Or is it a remake? You know, well, there's been a couple of movies called The Boogeyman yeah. that have nothing to do with each other. Oh, People okay. just like this title and keep using it. And so this has nothing to do with any other previously. Can you movie. do that? Can you just like name a movie that's named after a movie that's already come? And Sure, why not? I, I mean, it. It's not optimal for your search engine optimization, <laughs> but uh, hey, whatever. No uh, so anyway, long and short, it sucked. Hard you don't time. like horror movies, though. It wasn't scary. It was super predictable. Mm-hmm. The acting was bad. There was there were no redeeming qualities about this movie. Hard pass. The boogeyman. Terrible. Uh, my other suggestion to them, though, was there was a, a movie that came out earlier, like right at the beginning of this year, that uh, that finally is available for streaming, and it's called Plane, like short for airplane. Mm-hmm. And it's an action movie that stars um, Gerard Butler and Mike Coulter. Uh, people might know Mike Coulter from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He played um, Luke Cage. Um, and the uh, this one, I, I thought it was good. I really liked it. It's, uh, you know, Gerard Butler's the pilot. They're on this flight on New Year's Eve going from Singapore to Los Angeles. There's only a handful of passengers. Uh, Mike Coulter is a prisoner that is being extradited to the u.s and then as you would expect uh the plane has to make an unexpected landing somewhere in the in the southern south pacific and they end up on an island where there's like bandits and pirates and stuff and then it becomes like a shoot 'em up how do we get off the island kind of movie only to uh um you know end in like nice thrilling action stuff so it was one of those turn your brains off and and enjoy the action way better than boogeyman uh i would say the plane is probably a c i mean it's fun, but it's not fantastic. Right. Um, had a chance to revisit a few. Oh, I one other new one uh, that just dropped uh, this week or last week. It's called The Burial. I think it was on Amazon as well. It's got um, Tommy Lee Jones and Jamie Foxx. 
loosely based on a true story. Tommy Lee Jones plays a guy who owns uh, um, uh, a bunch of funeral homes in the southern U.S., and when he's facing financial difficulty, he tries to sell some of them to a, uh, an investor, and then basically the investor tries to screw him. And so he's like, well, forget that. I'm suing you. And why not? That's the American way. And he gets Jamie Foxx uh, to come on as his attorney. And the thing is that the guy Jamie Foxx is playing is a real guy, was a very, very successful trial lawyer in personal injury claims where he represented uh, black people who were you know, not of great means, but were entitled to great settlements. And so the Tommy Lee Jones character that he represented in real life um, was the first time he'd ever taken on a white client. And it was essentially a contract law case, but it blew up into so much more once they started digging, which is obviously why they made the movie. And uh, again, it was nice. To, I mean, Jamie Foxx is good in just about everything he does. He's And uh, Tommy Lee Jones looking real old. Like I thought Tommy Lee Jones looked old in The Fugitive. Man, he looks really old in this one. But uh, again, it was he is old. I mean, he didn't he start is, acting until yeah. he was in his 30s. And that was in 1980 with Cole Miner's daughter. So, yeah, he yeah. is old. Yeah. So and again, it was just OK. I would give mm-hmm. it maybe like a, a C plus, uh, you know, if it's on, you have nothing better to do. And you're a fan of those guys. Sure. Give sure. it a go. Uh, then I had a chance to go to the 90s. I saw two movies from the late 90s. Again, I'd seen them both, but I hadn't seen either one in a long time. This is an example of the wife saying, watch these things on the PVR because it's getting full. So you always mention that. Yeah. Yeah. uh, 1999 Ed TV with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, Jenna Elfman. Her moment was late in the late 90s when she was a big thing for a while there. Mm, Uh, She was in like Dharma and Greg and stuff. Yeah, yeah. she she had her moment um, and she looked great in this movie. Don't get me wrong. Uh, So, again, this is she like a Scientologist or something uh, crappy like that. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, So NTV and The Truman Show came out within a year of each other. Similar Mm -hmm. premise where somebody is constantly under the microscope, whereas Truman Show was more about, you know, Truman, as the as the subject, had no idea he was on camera. Whereas Ed TV is the opposite. It's he literally signs up to be on camera twenty four seven. And this is this is like pre internet. Uh, they were literally following him around around with like over the shoulder cameras. It was being broadcast on television, and it was an interesting premise. Uh, it's billed as a comedy. It, it actually sort of the message is a lot more relevant today, I think, than it was in the nineties because it really is just all about the loss of. Of privacy and how once things are broadcast and once they're out there, there's no taking them back. And people are going to judge you and make comments about you, whether they know you, whether they're being fair or not. And uh, it was an interesting it was interesting to watch it all these years later and just see how much of the message still holds up so well. The technology is ridiculously old and, and seems clunky, which sort of makes it a little tough to watch. But the performances were pretty decent. So it was a fun one to revisit from 99. And then from 1998. And this is actually what gave me the idea for this topic we're doing tonight is the movie is called Snake Eyes. And it stars Nicolas Cage and Gary Sinise. And it takes place over like a three hour period. Basically, there's um a professional boxing match that's happening while there's a storm brewing outside. And while the boxing match happens at the beginning, um, there's a, a murder, someone is shot. And then the they, they have to close the doors to the stadium and not let anybody leave so they can try and figure out who did it. But they can only keep people hidden or um, keep people in the, in the stadium for like an hour. So it's all like under, under the gun. And uh, I remember seeing this one in the theater and thinking it was okay. And not really having a strong desire to rewatch it. But then I rewatched it this week and it actually it held up pretty good, too. I really liked it a lot more than I remembered enjoying it. Um, it has a lot of people who you're like, oh, I know who that guy is. He went on to do a this and a that. So a lot of little parts from other people, you know. But um, yeah, Snake Eyes from 99, not a bad Nicolas Cage 
uh, romp, if you will. So a lot of uh, a lot of reasonably okay movies this week. And then finally, I had a chance to watch a documentary. For forty days and forty nights, he watched documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. Who is that guy with the sultry voice singing that song? I don't know. Yeah, I don't uh, what, know. He should, he should get a contract. Yeah, he's doing something. Uh, what documentary did you watch this week, my friend? So uh, if you are Canadian mm-hmm. and you are of a certain age, you grew up watching Mr. Dress Up. I had a chance to watch the documentary yes. that's streaming on Amazon now. It's called Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe. So he, and, was, he was sort of like the Canadian version of, of um, Fred Rogers, yeah. Mr. Rogers, and, in a way, and, you know. Yeah, and what I didn't know until I watched this documentary, I don't want to ruin for people who haven't seen it yet, was um, uh, Mr. Dressup, the, the the performer who was Mr. Dressup, Ernie Coombs, he uh, he actually started, uh, he, he got his break working with Mr. Rogers. Like he was on the Mr. Rogers, uh, not the, the, the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood show, but the precursor to that. And then um, it was Fred Rogers was offered an opportunity to come to Canada and do a programming and he he you know, for a number of reasons, couldn't do it. And he basically suggested that Ernie Coombs go and do it. And he, and the rest is history. Uh, and apparently Mr. Rogers was the best man at Mr. Dressup's wedding. Oh, I was like, cool. like they were, they were that close. They would have been friends for, for years and years, their whole lives. So, uh, this show, this documentary was amazing. And I, obviously I remember Mr. Dressup from when I was a little kid. And so the parts of the documentary that showed those years and those seasons of the show were very nostalgic to me. A lot of the stuff that came in the late 80s and 90s as the show changed and and there was there was a turnover with the performers and such. Obviously, I had grown up and was long past Mr. Dressup. So a lot of that was brand new to me. I had no idea that some of the things that had changed on the show and uh, just the general um, late, late part of of Vernie Coombs life the last 10 years um you know I, I had no idea sort of how how that came to be so it was uh it was fascinating to watch it was a lot of nostalgia and uh really um you know really sad by the end because uh, you know spoiler alert the guy died he you know I think I think most of us realized that he's passed but again I had no idea how he died or the circumstances of his death and uh, the interesting thing is I started watching this uh, last week, one day when I was in the office, I, uh, I went to the gym at lunch and I needed something to watch for an hour while I'm doing my exercises. So I'm watching this documentary and I had about a half an hour to go. And I thought, well, my subway ride home is about a half an hour. So I'll finish it on the subway. And sure enough, I'm on the subway home. I finished watching this thing and I'm just bawling my eyes out crying at the end of this documentary. And like people on the subway are like looking at me. Are you OK? And I was just like, oh, I'm good. Thanks. Watching this really, you know, it's, it's sad. Uh, but no, it was fantastic. So uh, a plus two thumbs up for me for Mr. Dress Up. If you haven't seen it, if you're Canadian and you haven't seen this, do yourself a favor, uh, you know, complete your Canadian bingo card. Go watch this documentary. Yeah, I really want to see that one, too. Uh, for me. I showed I showed an an older movie to my son this past week. I know. When you say older, how old are we talking here? We're talking nineteen eighty. We watched the Blues Brothers, and he liked it. He really liked the musical numbers, especially the Aretha Franklin number when in the diner, which just diner, yeah. Um, But I wanted to mention something about the movie, Derek. So, first of all, I've probably seen the Blues Brothers mm, eight million times. You know, and that's a conservative Mm -hmm. number. I know every shot, like every scene. I know all the dialogue. So I got my hands on this DVD version of the movie for us to watch. And it had all these deleted scenes added like back into the movie. 
Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, they should have stayed deleted. <laughs> the deleted scenes sucked. Like in, in some cases, there were like full out long scenes. And then others, the majority of the movie was just like these little added lines of dialogue or two. But when you've seen the movie 8 million times, you know, you, you pick up on all these things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it totally threw off the pacing and the rhythm of the whole movie. So a few of them that stood out to me. The opening scene when Belushi's getting out of jail, right? Mm-hmm. Movie opens up. Right in the middle of it, they go to his jail cell and they start rattling the bars with the, like Billy clubs. And they're like yelling at him, wake up, wake up, you're getting out of here. I, I like the, the original so much better because the whole key to that opening scene is there's no dialogue. It's just all these shots, like long shots of like walking down corridors and the sounds of the big metal prison doors. Like there's one line of dialogue before they get to Frank Oz and the, when the guard says, well, I guess this is it. But that's it. Like other than that, it's just walking around and stuff. And so another scene, there's this whole thing about Elwood going to work. He works in this factory that make these like cans of glue and he steals one. It shows up later in the film when he glues the gas pedal. Remember the good old boys? Yeah. Man? Yeah. Yeah. But there's no reason like for this scene. And even the conversation he has with his boss, it's like, I got to quit. And the boss is like, okay, well, just do what you need to do. And that's it. It's just so dumb. Like, it's just so stupid. There's, uh, they also, they stop and talk uh, with each other before they go into the triple rock. And there's this whole thing about this hidden garage in Elwood's apartment building. Like, almost every scene in the movie has like an extra line of dialogue or two. Like, remember when they go to Miss um, Tarantino's house and they're looking for Bones Malone, Lulu Marini? Yes. And just all these extra added lines of dialogue and that it just throws off the entire pace of the film. So anyway, for the first time in my life, I watched the Blues Brothers and I didn't really enjoy it all that much. It's blasphemy. I know. It's a, Don't you blasphemy in here. Don't you blasphemy in here. <laughs> so you know. I think I think, Chris, the difference here is. Mm-hmm. Um, up until recently, and I mean recently, probably 20 years, uh, when movies were were edited down, there was a lot of there was a lot of good reasons for doing so. Yeah. And and there was no intention of ever recovering or sharing the deleted scenes. And the people making the movie felt that it was a way to improve the movie. I think more recently what's happened is directors uh, will shoot sort of, quote, the movie they want to make. And then they know they can cut it down in post or they're given direction from their studio, cut it down so we can get it under a certain time. We can show it so many times in the theater. And then they know, given the world we live in today, oh, well, we can just put all this stuff back in on uh, on the Blu-ray as an s- extra feature. Or in the case of something like the Justice League one where they're like, we want to release the Schneider cut or, or right. a lot of movies now will say like we have a director's edition and the director knows they will have an opportunity to put the scenes back in. And in, in a lot of cases, the director's cuts feel like they're better movies because the director had every intention of putting those scenes back in. Whereas I think in those older movies, like the kind you're describing, the things that were cut were cut for good reason. The, the dialogue was bad or it, it helped with the pacing or, or they, it was taken out to improve the pacing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there was a radical shift in that kind of thinking probably about the mid 90s. So I, I think you're right. Any any of these movies where you have deleted, even like Star Wars, is a good example there. Luke is like, I got to put these scenes back in. Like, you know oh, what, dude, they should have stayed out. They yeah. didn't. They don't help. So 
Just yeah, that was definitely the case here. And the thing was, it gave me new appreciation, I think, for editors and the editing process because it mm-hmm. it really does mess with the the pacing of the film. That movie is perfect the way it is, you know. And just they just need to leave it. Oh, and speaking Pretty of things, yeah. speaking of things that are perfect, here's your dad joke of the week, Derek. Since we're focusing on movies that take place over twenty four hours, I have a twenty four hour joke for you. The only thing is. It's religious. <laughs> what do they always so you, say? They always say, never talk about religion, sex, or politics. <laughs> Man, this podcast breaks every one of those rules pretty much every <laughs> week. But anyway, so here's my joke, okay? So Derek, after after God created 24 hours of alternating darkness and light, what did he say? I have no idea. I think I'll call it a day. <laughs> Chris, I think you're going to hell in 24 hours. Oh my God, he's so hot. No, he's so sexy. And Raiders of the Lost. How many times did you watch that before you finally went and looked for the Russell Crowe version? I'm really impressed. It's not as good as John Wick, don't get me wrong. This movie was fantastic. And I do believe Scorsese might have had his hand in that one. He might have in more ways than one. And then you couldn't, and then you couldn't, and then you couldn't. Beep, 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 beep. E.T. the extra so, Derek, for this week's topic, you came up with a, a pretty cool idea, I think. You know, it's like you were like, why don't we take a look at movies that take place entirely within a day? You know, so we each went ahead and put together a top five list of our personal favorite movies that take place in one day. And we're going to run down them together. But before we do that, do you want to talk a little bit about like any parameters that we should put on this or things like that? And maybe even yeah. do you have any honorable mentions that fell outside your top five? And this is your time to mention them, I guess. Yeah. So sort of both of those things. So as I mentioned, I was watching the movie Snake Eyes earlier this week and mm. and it takes place in like the, the, the whole movie is supposed to take place within a few hours. Obviously not in real time because some scenes are shown from multiple angles, that kind of thing. Um, but this this idea has been mentioned on a couple of podcasts I've listened to before where people, when they're reviewing various movies and they go, hey, this is another one of those ones that takes all the events take place in a few hours or, or no more than one one day. And so when I saw it again this week, I thought, yeah, that 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 might not be a bad topic. So you and I were sort of chatting about it. And I know at first you were saying to me like, Oh, that might be tough to come up with some some movies. And mm. then just off the top of my head, I like message you. I'm like, well, how about da, da, da. I listed like 10 movies? And I was like, wow, that was that was easier than I thought, at mm. least coming up with a few. And then when we were when it came time to do my actual list, I, I you know, I rattled off 10 or 15 movies. I sort of crossed off the ones I kind of figured you were going to stake your claim on. No, you know, spoiler, probably a lot of movies from the 80s. And Shocker. then um, and then I went to the Internet and said and I typed in a bunch of different searches and I was pleasantly surprised by how many movies fit the parameter and so i I ended up with a list of about 20 and let me tell you narrowing that down to just five was exceptionally difficult but there was a couple of movies that um i found a few threads on reddit and other places where people were having this discussion and so for example one of the movies that came up was reservoir dogs people said were like hey this is a good example it all takes place in one day but then the counter argument was yeah but there's a lot of flashbacks yes the main story happens their start at breakfast in the diner and it ends later in the day with the shootout. Yes. Sequentially, if you look at the movie, that's what happens. But more than about a third of the movie is flashbacks where it's going to different days, different times, different people. Mm -hmm. So I kind of looked at that as more an exception to this rule. Yes, it sort of fits, but I, I just found better choices. And another one that sort of was a little bit of a cheat. And again, 
I avoided it for that reason was Groundhog Day. Because, yes, it's one day, but he relives it over and over and over and over and over. So it's multiple days. Yeah. And and I guess technically by the end of it, the final time through when he wakes up, it's the next day. And so he has actually been in Punxsutawney for I think it's, uh, you know, two nights, which is more than a 24 hour cycle. So, again, that one was sort of a little bit of a cheat, which I again, I didn't want to put it on the list, but I did want to acknowledge that there are going to be some movies that you might think, yes, this does technically qualify, but it technically doesn't. So, uh, you know, there were so many other good examples that, uh, that, that, you know, I was able to just dismiss those. Those are both great movies, Reservoir Dogs and Groundhog Day, but I was able to dismiss those two and say, let me, let me find five, uh, better examples. And then as I go through my movies, I'll, I, I, I did notice some patterns and certain things, but I'll wait till I get into that, uh, into the actual movies before I talk about them. Uh, how about you? Is there any, any sort of general discussion? Before uh, well, we no surprise here. All of mine are from 1989 or before. There was, remember the TV show 24? I got thinking yes. about this. I, I never watched it though. I know, shocking. But what was the general concept supposed to be like every season was 24 hours? So like each episode was real time for an hour? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. The, um, each each season was 24 episodes. Each episode took place over the course of one hour. It was more or less happening in real time kind of mm-hmm. thing. Obviously, when it broke for a commercial um, and you came back, in some instances, no time had passed. And in some instances, the four minutes of commercial time had passed. And the gimmick with that show was it would literally show you the ticking digital clock through right. and multiple okay. times throughout each episode so that you as the audience would know. And at the start of every episode, it would say, the episode, you know, the 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 series of events that happened in this episode are were on the day of September 24th from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. or or something like that. So that, you know, again, it it framed it right at the beginning. They told you exactly what you expect. What I found, I only watched the first season of that show. But from what I found was it, it was becoming a little bit hard to believe that certain characters were able to stay awake and be good at what they were doing for 24 consecutive hours, because many of them when the action starts in the first episode, they've already been awake a full day and then they're required to stay awake for a full 24 hours after that. It, it just started getting a little bit too far-fetched for my liking. But, couple but things, I know people that watched every episode and loved it. So. Yeah, I, like I said, I'd never seen it, but a couple of things uh, about that. First first of all, Kiefer Sutherland and Alicia Cuthbert were in it, right? They're a couple of fellow Canadians. So yeah, she cool. played the daughter, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned four-minute commercial break. Since when did that happen? I remember back in the day, it used to always be, if you remember watching um, Love Connection with Chuck Woolery, it was always two minutes, two seconds was the commercial break. So then apparently at some point it doubled to four minutes. Oh yeah, anyway. no. Now, if you watch modern, like Grey's Anatomy, when they go to commercial, I think it's like five five minutes, 30 seconds. Like they jam as much commercial, many commercials in there as they can. Oh man, that's crazy. Okay, so why don't we start our top five list? Top five movies that take place over the course of 24 hours or one day. Uh, why don't you kick us off with your number five? We'll work our way up. What do you got? All right. Uh, my number five yes. is a movie that I've spoken about many times on this podcast before, so I won't dwell in it too much. Mm-hmm. And it's the 1994 Clerks from director, oh, yes. writer-director Kevin Smith. That does take place in one day, doesn't it? That's right. It absolutely does. Yeah. And in fact, the main character, Dante, constantly reminds you, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Mm-hmm. You know, today, not I'm not supposed to be here this week. I'm not supposed to be. It's literally I'm not supposed to be here today. And all these things happen on the one day. Um, And one of the things that that we're going to find with these movies is a lot of the reason that uh, the movie and the action and and the the story can 
take place in one day or less is because there's often a um, confined setting. In many of these movies, I found that it's something happens uh, and the people that are in this situation are often trapped or there's some compelling reason for them to stay where they are for a limited amount of time, whether it's something, again, this isn't actually something that happens in any of my movies, but something like they're trapped on an elevator, or in this case, the guy's at work and the store's only open from 8 a.m. till midnight. It's like, okay, well, then we're gonna follow him along through this this one day. So again, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the movie Clerks, came out in 1994, Kevin Smith, writer and director. Uh, the movie is shot in black and white. It was an independent film. It was made on an extremely limited budget. It is super duper dialogue driven. Um, the whole idea is it's, uh, it basically it's, it's what a podcast would be today before there were podcasts. It's two guys working in a convenience store in a video store, just like riffing on customers and, and making fun of pop culture stuff. And you know, it's everything that Kevin Smith has gone on to become famous for. And, um, no one had done anything like this before. And, um, the, I mean, the camera work is, is, fairly straightforward again not to be critical of somebody else's art but it's literally two guys in a convenience store it's not like there's trick shots or special effects or anything like that it's 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 extremely dialogue driven it's just you know point of camera point and shoot kind of movie um but that's the appeal of it it's it's literally you you should be paying more attention to what they're saying and not be as hung up on what you're looking at so um so my first example here this 24-hour film is clerks well that's a good one Okay, my number five, I probably have more to say about this movie than all of my other four. But but there's a reason why when you get to my other four, you realize where they are. But this one's an important one. I'm going with Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. Not only one of the best movies that takes place in one day, but Dog Day Afternoon is one of the best movies from the 70s. You could argue it's one of the best American films ever made. I wouldn't argue that one too much. Like I would, You wouldn't get any argument from me on that. I think it is. So it's, it's based on a real life story of a bank robbery and this hostage situation that sort of goes wrong, at least for the robbers. <laughs> so Al Pacino plays the lead role and he, along with uh, John Cazale, rob a bank only to find out that the bank money pickup, like it just happened. So there's only like a thousand dollars in the bank. So they get surrounded by cops and then they take hostages. And it turns out that Al Pacino is in a relationship with a man who needs to pay for a sex change operation. He's played by Chris uh, Sarandon. Remember, uh, he was in uh, Fright Night? Yep. The vampire. Jerry's a terrible vampire name. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he was Prince Humperdinck, of course, from The Princess Bride. But the movie really is about this complex relationship between robbers and hostages and cops and the media and even like the, the onlookers there. So the director is Sidney Lumet, and he does an amazing job here. So. You know, on the surface, it seems like it's just all these like cliches and old gangster robbery tropes going on. But he's really exploring them rather than using them, if that makes any sense. It's just a brilliant, brilliant piece of filmmaking. And the fact that it all takes place in sort of real time over the course of one day, is it just adds to the suspense. It's got a lot of black humor in it as well. And the part that I really like about this movie is that it explores the notion of celebrity. So it'd be actually kind of cool to go back and review this movie sometime through the lens of today, you know, where anybody can be a star with YouTube and social media and stuff. But back then it was all about getting on TV. 
like whatever, you know, um, you know, whatever way you can get on TV, that's going to make you a celebrity. And, and what better way to do that than, you know, being part of a bank robbery or a hostage situation. So the hostages even play it up. The pizza delivery guy plays it up. It is a brilliant film. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Pacino, Best Supporting Actor, Chris Sarandon, and it won an Oscar for Best Screenplay. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest basically swept the awards that year, so it didn't stand a chance in any of the categories. And of course, John Cazale starred in a grand total of five films, and all five were nominated for Best Picture. There was The Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. But Dog Day Afternoon, my number five for of the best 24-hour movies of all time. So what do you got for number four? I just want to say, I, I, I've never seen Dog Day Afternoon in its entirety. I started mm-hmm. watching it. It's one of those ones that everyone's aware of, right? right. And so yes. I'm like, oh, I got to watch this. Sat down to watch it. I watched it for about 20 minutes. I'm like, this is really slow and really boring. But but the 70s movies have slow pacing like that. So I, I knew I was getting into that. Came back to it the next day. Tried watching it again. I got about 10 or 15 minutes into it. And then I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I, I had to stop. I, I couldn't get through it. So so if, if you do want to nominate this as a movie for some time down the road, I will make a point of sitting through it in its entirety. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you, the first 30 minutes did not wow me. Mm. Okay, well, maybe we'll Uh, have to review it sometime. We'll see. Yeah. Right, what do you got for your number four movie? My number four pick is right in your wheelhouse from 1981, and it is a movie called Escape from New York. Oh, oh, that is all in one day? Yeah, so uh, John Carpenter. I can't remember, did we do this one on our podcast? Yeah, Yeah, I thought we had. So uh, it's the not-too-distant future, which is probably actually past the date we're in in real life, and New York has become a prison island. All the worst criminals in the, in the U.S. are sent to the island of New York, which is now a prison. And it's just a free-for-all. The prisoners can do whatever they want. And at the start of the movie, the president of the United States is flying back uh, uh, from an overseas conference. And his plane gets shot down. And his escape pod is ejected out of the plane and lands in in the, the island prison of New York City. And so they uh, they find this... Uh, this uh, rag ragtag roughing up uh, military ex military guy who's been in prison who they know has all these special skills and they're like, we'll give you a presidential pardon if you go and rescue him. Uh, the kicker is uh, we put a little explosive in uh, in your skull and if you don't get back here within 22 hours with the president, this little bomb's gonna blow up. So don't think of just taking off. You have to do what we say and come back so we can disarm the uh, dis- deactivate the bomb, and, and and that's it. And then. The ticking clock becomes a big part of this movie. So they give them, they literally give them a big watch with this digital readout and it starts counting down immediately. So throughout the course of the movie, he's constantly looking at the watch. He's constantly asking like, how long is it going to take us to get from here to there? He's constantly like doing the math. And um, this helps, like this is an action adventure movie. And this really helps keep the suspense going because you as the audience realize that as he's running into these challenges and complications, it's slowing him down. And he's, you know, his life is at stake along with the life of the president uh, for very different reasons. But there's this ticking clock. So, you know, when the clock hits zero, something's going to happen. Is he is his head going to explode? Is he going to have completed his mission? Is he going to figure some way to extend the countdown or stop the bomb from going off? The first, you know, the first time you watch it, you have no idea how this is going to going to end. But, you know, 22 hours from when they send him on this mission, come hell or high water, something's going to happen. 
And so the movie, again, spoiler, we have already spoiled this before. Uh, he does end up coming out of New York and he gets back just in time with seconds to spare and they deactivate the bomb and, and like the movie ends like two minutes later. So this one is more of a full 24 hour cycle between when the president's plane crashes and when uh, Snake Plissken rescues him from New York. It's from 1981. Escape from New York, John Carpenter. I like it. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, Derek, my number four. Every year on Christmas Eve, my wife and I, we get the kids to bed, we snuggle up together on the couch, we break out the Kraken rum. Unleash the Kraken! After we unleash the Kraken rum, we watch my number four movie that takes place all in one day, or in this case, actually, it's one night, and that's Die Hard. Nice. So Good we, yeah, we reviewed this movie back on episode 227, so everyone knows about this movie, I don't need to get into too much of it here, but just a couple of fun facts. So before Bruce Willis was hired, he was still pretty much an unknown actor at the time. He was mostly known for uh, his role on TV's Moonlighting, which was a comedic, you know, role. And so the studio considered other actors for the lead role of John McClane. Actors such as Kurt Russell from, you know, uh, Escape from New York, you just mentioned. Mel Gibson, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Clint Eastwood... And the studio's initial choice, Frank Sinatra. Well, they, the studio was actually contractually obligated to offer him the part because uh, Sinatra starred in the 1968 film The Detective, which was based on Roderick Thorpe's novel, The Detective. And the sequel to that book, Nothing Lasts Forever, was the basis for Die Hard. So oh, the okay. studio was sort of contractually obligated to offer Sinatra sort of the first right of refusal. But we all know about Die Hard. Takes place over the course of one night. Happens to be Christmas Eve, thus making it a Christmas movie. Haters be damned. And it involves an off-duty cop busting up a bunch of thieves who've taken hostages at a Christmas party. We all know the plot. We all love the plot. I don't think I've ever met anyone that doesn't like Die Hard. It's just so good. And it's my number four movie that takes place all in one day or in one night in this case. So on to your numbers, yeah, great, my friend. That's a great pick. Yeah. No, I, and I uh, honestly, I had a discussion with my wife after I had made my picks and you had, had sent her your picks so that we can make sure there are no overlaps. And on, I just asked her off the top of your head, what are you, some things? And she she couldn't come up with the answers immediately to movies off the top of her head. But she then said to me, well, we're coming into Christmas. I'll bet you the lot of holiday movies take place just on the one day or the one night before Christmas. And then and then immediately she said, like Die Hard. And I'm like, yeah, I have a feeling that might make one of the lists. So <laughs> did so, yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to stick with action adventure and uh, I'm going to go to the 90s, 1994, and I'm going with the movie Speed, Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. Oh, that's a good so, one. So again, the premise of this one, it's super easy. It's uh, basically Die Hard on a bus. It, you know, there's a mad bomber. And at the beginning of the movie, he tries to set up a bomb so that he can, uh, you know, steal a whole bunch of money. And that gets screwed up by the Keanu Reeves character as a police officer. And so he has to pivot and he ends up putting a bomb on a bus and he calls in a ransom and he said, is the bus, you know, if the bus drops below 50 miles an hour, the, the thing will blow up. And if the bus runs out of gas, which it eventually will, it's going to blow up. So ticking clock, get me my money or think bad things are going to happen. And uh, I mean, it sounds like such a simple premise, which it, I mean, it is at its most basic level. But man, oh, man, is this is an exciting movie. And it was again. Good. Yeah. Again, you, it's this whole idea of the ticking clock, which for an action movie, this is a great this is a great um, 
plot device, right? You you come up with a reason why things have to happen in a set amount of time, which leans right into our our topic of, well, how do you make an action movie where the, the, the action must take place in 24 hours or less? Well, here's another good example. It's, uh, you know, you're on this bus. The bus uh, has to keep moving at top speed, which is burning its fuel. And eventually the bus got run out of gas. So as an audience member, you're going to realize this. And, and you know, in, in a good movie like this one, someone in the movie actually speaks those lines of dialogue somewhere in it where they say something like, well, the bus can't keep driving forever. It's eventually going to have to stop or something like that. So that if, you know, if you haven't caught on by then, you realize, oh, my God, like something's going to happen within an hour of these characters lives. And, um, you know, uh, again, I'm sure by now people have seen this movie or know enough about it. And, uh, you know, it's just this action adventure shoot them up bus chase uh, blow them up kind of movie and uh you know it all it all starts in the morning with the mad bomber trying to to blow up an elevator and uh it ends with uh the the bus uh eventually blowing up after all the passengers spoiler after all the passengers get taken off so uh and it all takes place in one day so speed is my number three and from beginning to end it is just good it, it is, is really it's a lot it's of fun to watch speed yeah that's a good one Okay, so my number three, when you talk about movies that take place all in one day, what better example than a movie that's all about a day off? Yes, I'm talking about Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986. Absolute Gen X staple. Everyone from Gen X knows it. Everyone from Gen X loves it. It's it's kind of like Die Hard. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know too many people that dislike Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know what I mean? Uh, Matthew Broderick became an 80s icon, you know, in this title role. Alan Ruck as Cameron is he's friggin' brilliant. He's this totally neurotic teenager. Mia Sarah is this gorgeous girlfriend of Ferris's. And of course, of course, maybe the best character in the whole movie, Ferris's sister, Jennifer Grey. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, she's great. Before her nose job, too. I don't know why she did that. I still, I mentioned that before. She looks so much better. The way she originally looked, she was so unique and beautiful. And I don't know, she went and changed her face. With a, it ended up killing her career too. Unless you count down, Dancing with the Stars as anything other than crap, which I don't. But anyway, one thing that is not crap is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I love everything about this movie. Ben Stein and Edie McClurg. And that, that scene when his father calls the school and Rooney like back talks him. And Ferris turns out to be on the other line because he's like, that's just Ferris on the line pretending to be his dad. And you find out it's actually Cameron doing the voice of his dad. It gets me every time. I laugh so much. I love it. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, my number three movie that takes place in one day. So on to your number two. Yeah, it literally has day in the title. So that one was (laughs) sort of a gimme. Yeah. Uh, So this one, this was a little bit of an unconventional pick. And, I'm, uh, you know, it's sort of that one where even if you know the movie, it's sort of got to love it, hate it. Uh, It's from 2002. So I know you've never seen it. (laughs) And it's a movie called Phone Booth. It stars Colin Farrell and um, Kiefer Sutherland. You're actually going to be surprised. I have seen it. I remember I watched it it on DVD a number of years ago. I'd heard about it. I was like, ah, I needed something to rent one night. And I, I rented it and watched it. Well, I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I do remember um, watching it in the theater and mm-hmm. really enjoying it. Uh, I have it on DVD and I, I've seen it a few times. Uh, it's directed by Joel Schumacher. And um, 
it's uh, again, it's it's not only is it all in one day, it's pretty much all in one scene and like all in one place. In the first five minutes of the movie, you get introduced to Colin Farrell's character, who seems like he's kind of a douche. And uh, he's out in public and uh, a public telephone starts ringing. And so as as a lot of people might do just out of curiosity, he picks it up and it turns out the guy on the other end actually calls him by name. So he's intrigued, like what's happening? And uh, the guy basically says, I have a sniper rifle pointed right at you. And if you don't, uh, you got to stay on this phone and and do what I tell you or I'm going to shoot you. And uh, and so Colin Farrell's character is literally trapped in this phone booth for the 90 minutes or so that the movie takes place while we see other people doing things around him. The the camera work is really interesting in this one because you get a lot of things like split screens where you're constantly keeping an eye on Colin Farrell in the phone booth. And then when he's making calls, like he has a mobile phone with him as well. So he's able to use the mobile phone to make other calls and you see the split screen of the person he's calling or you see like um, they don't actually reveal who the shooter is uh, visually until the very end of the movie, but we know that it's Kiefer Sutherland. We hear his voice. I mean, he's got a very distinctive voice, which is part of the reason they cast him for this thing. But you have like cutaway scenes or um, split screens where it's, it zooms in on like his gun and things like that. So you can get that sense of danger. And again, this one sort of like we were saying with escape from New York and speed, it's got that, um, that, uh, that confinement idea where it's like, you know, he's, he's stuck in one spot. There's, there's, the, the, the metaphorical tip, ticking clock in this one and that the, the person who's on the other end is is demanding that he take certain actions and do certain things. And if he doesn't, that he's going to cause harm to to his character or to some of the people around him. Um, and again, because he's got the it's literally a guy on the phone uh, and, and the movie happens mostly in real time. So, he, you know, the character is supposed to be in that phone booth for about an hour. And that's pretty much the length of the movie. The movie only runs an hour and 20 minutes, a little shorter than you might expect. But uh, the gimmick starts to run its course. And, and you're sort of glad by the end that it's 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 done. But no, it's it's really it, I think it's really good. I think it's really clever. I think it's really interesting. I think it's an interesting way to uh, to use this concept of a of a one single primary location and uh, and to resolve what ended up being a fairly complex story in a relatively short period of time uh, in well under our 24 hour limit. Probably the whole events of the movie are probably only supposed to take place in about two hours or less. So my number two pick is Phone Booth from 2002. If you haven't seen it before, give it a watch. If you haven't seen it in a while, it might be worth a revisit. Okay, good. <clears throat> my number two, we're getting down to it now. I feel like if when you're talking about movies that take place all in one day, it should have something to do with the movie. Like, I mean, the, the fact that it takes place in a single day should have some significance to the story yeah. in some way, you know? And there's no better example, I don't think, than my number two. And, and not, not only because it takes place in one day, it's the events that happen during the hottest day of the year. And this drives home the point of the film because everyone's overheated and, and, and tempers are, you know, flaring. And that's do the right thing. Spike Lee's best film by far. So we actually reviewed this one on the podcast too. It was back on episode 115, all the way back in 2019. We've been doing this for a while. Now. Wow. But the opening title sequence with Rosie Perez in the boxer shorts, and she's like punching at the screen with Public Enemies Fight the Power playing. Mm-hmm. One of the best movie title sequence openings ever. It just tells you exactly what you're in for with this film. It's like a punch to the face watching this. So the racial tensions that exist in America are basically depicted in this film, you know, across race and ethnic lines in this neighborhood in Bedstoy 
in Brooklyn. And it's always there sort of bubbling below the surface, but it takes the hottest day of the year to make it spill over into the streets. And Spike Lee just proves this point at the end of the movie when Radio Rahim is killed during this riot and Mookie smashes the window because all the controversy of the film centered around Mookie breaking the window with a trash can. That's what everybody focused on. Meanwhile, a black man's laying dead in the street. But people were more outraged by this broken window. I mean, and, and that's how Spike Lee sort of shined a light on racism. And, and I just, I feel like he did it masterfully with Do the Right Thing. It is one of the best American films ever made. Second one on my list tonight that is one of the best American films ever made. You know, it, uh, the fact that it all takes place in one day is a really big part of the story narrative. And it just makes the film work all that much better. So do the right thing. My number two. This is it. We're on to your number one, man. What do you got? All right. So my number one is we're going way back. 1957. Mm. It's my second black and white movie on my list. This is 12 Angry Men. Oh, what a great pick. 12 Angry Men is definitely one of my all time favorite movies. It was based on a stage play. Um, so. Although this does technically take place within the 24-hour period, there's no reason that it has to take place in a 24-hour period. So, I, I, I again, it's it's within the rules and the guidelines we've established. But unlike my other movies where there was clearly a ticking clock or some other, uh, you know, built-in story mechanism, like even in Clerks, the guy's just doing one shift at work like the store is closed overnight so you know it's going to only be one day 12 angry men is about a jury a jury deciding whether or not a, a you know a person is guilty or not guilty of a murder and as we know from you know the way our courts well especially the way the american courts work today it's on it's unusual for a jury to just be in and out in one day but this is art this is this is a movie this is a play that was turned into a movie and you have the uh the 12 jurors who um, are, you know, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with it, I, I mean, I hate to ruin it this way, but it is so good. They they, they go in, they, everyone seems to be convinced that the guy is guilty, they do the vote, and it turns out the vote is uh, 11 to 1, and they need a unanimous vote for guilty. Everyone, so 11 think guilty, and one guy says not guilty. And then the the, the jury foreman starts saying, like, well, who's the, who says he's not guilty? And the one guy puts up his hand, it's Henry Fonda, and he... And he's like, oh, well, why do you think he's not guilty? He's like, oh, I don't know if he's not guilty, but I think it's worth discussing the facts. Uh, you know, we need to be sure beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm not necessarily sure beyond a reasonable doubt this quickly. Let's re make, let's review the facts. And through the course of the story, all the things that everybody feels are absolute, hardcore, undisputable facts are fairly easily refuted with a little bit of common sense and a little bit of practical application. And more and more of the jurors start to see that, you know, you need to sort of check your preconceptions at the door and be open to possibilities. And by the end of it, they swing the other way and the movie ends with the guy getting off as not guilty. And one of the things I love about this, well, there's so many good things about this movie. One of the things I really like about this movie is because they're jurors, they're not supposed to know a lot of details about each other. So none of the characters have names or reveal their names. And even in the credits, it just says juror number one, juror number two, juror number three. That's how they refer to each other. And that's how they're referred to in the film, um, which I, I think is just a masterstroke. Like, obviously, in today's day and age, 
nobody's going to do that. Everyone's going to find out who everybody else's name is. But it's, it's just another way to um, just just dot the I's and cross the T's and, and just show how meticulously crafted this script is. And um, again, like I said, although it does take place in one day, it doesn't have to. And I, I think that's part of the reason I wanted it as my number one, whereas all the ones I had before this had to take place in 24 hours. Like you said, Chris, like it has to be an integral part to the movie. It has to make sense. Mm -hmm. um, in this one, it does make sense. But if it had taken two or three days, you probably could have still got the same outcome. But I don't think it would have had the same emphasis. Like I think the fact that they are literally starting to feel trapped in this jury room and and a couple of the characters through the course of the of the film talk like one guy has tickets to a baseball game and at the beginning he's talking about how like oh i'm glad we're gonna be out here quick i'm gonna be you know gonna be able to go and see the game and then once it gets later in the evening and he realizes he's not gonna get to go to this baseball game you know it, it changes his attitudes a little bit and and so the the fact that they are there long enough that it's starting to become like a full day where they all expect to be in and out in five minutes is an important part of this so it's my number one pick. And for anyone who hasn't seen 12 Angry Men, do yourself a favor. It's got to be available for for free or relatively cheaply. Try and find it. Uh, the Jack Lemmon uh, remake that they did, and I want to say the late 90s or early 2000s, I only ever saw one time, and it was fantastic as well. But uh, there's there's nothing. This is... The original is still the best. Yeah. The original is so good. Every yeah. time when I see it show up, it comes on Turner Classic Movies at least twice a year. When I see it in the lineup... If it's if I can catch it live, I watch it live. And if I can't catch it live, I record it and I watch it right away. It is that good. I've probably seen it 15 times or more. It, it's just it is amazing. All right. OK, so my number one, probably not a big surprise. My number one movie that takes place in one day is The Breakfast Club from 1985. So if you go back to the very first episode of this podcast, Yancey and I each had to name a film that best represented our respective generations. And my film was The Breakfast Club. I think it's the most important film about the Gen X experience. And really, if you think about it, it's not just a depiction of what it's like to be a Gen X teenager. The film's just about what it's like to be a teenager, period. I think regardless of what generation you were born into, you know, and, and I'm, I think I'm going to put this sort of theory to the test soon because my son is 14. He just started high school, grade nine this year. And I want to let him watch this movie and then gauge how he relates to it mm -hmm. because I think he will, because I, I think regardless of, you know, when this film came out, it's, it's about the things that make being a teenager so hard, you know, like the, the clicks and the stereotypes and the expectations on you and resistance to authority. It's, it's about maturity. It's about growing up and reflecting on who you are as a human being. And, and the whole connecting narrative thread is these five teenagers are in detention on a Saturday and they have to write an essay about who they think they are. It's just a plot device, but it's meant to represent how they see themselves and how they see the world around them, which is a really big part of growing up, right? So regardless of what generation you belong to, that is a big part of it. So I think it's less about generation and, and more about age. And I, I think... The fact that it all takes place in one day is important because it's not just that too. It all takes place in one room pretty much. You know, if, if you watch this movie, it's it, almost like your number one. It's almost like watching a live play. Like, yeah, it's just an unfolding in real time. These characters take a journey together. It's an amazing film. It, it's, 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 it's not only my favorite movie that takes place all in one day. 
it's my favorite movie depicting depicting Gen X and the teenager's perspective. So that's why my number one. So that's what I went with. Good pick. Yeah, that's why I thought so too. All right, what do you say on that note? We have some fun with Caveman. So Derek, all of our movies tonight took place over the span of 24 hours, but tonight's fun with Caveman takes place in the span of 30 seconds. It's time to take a seat in the winner's circle of the $100,000 pyramid. Okay, so Derek, I'm going to be giving you clues in the form of lists only, you know, according to the game rules. So you just have to guess each category. And, and as usual, there's six categories in total. You make it to the top of the pyramid, you win $100,000. Or the chance to buy me a beer when we meet up on Saturday. Okay, fair Likely enough. the latter. You have these two Okay. Things. So uh, are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. Let's do this. Okay, go. 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Ferris John Bueller. Hughes movies. Yes. He posed as Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. He went to the top of the Sears Tower. Ferris Bueller. Yes. Grey's Anatomy, ER, Chicago Hope. Shows about doctors, shows about hospitals. Yes. Scooby-Doo, Hong Kong Fooey, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the Smurfs, Real Ghostbusters, Transformers, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Cartoons that have movies. Cartoons that were made into movies. Schoolhouse Uh, Rock. uh, Josie and the Pussycats. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I don't know. Pass. pass. Um, Kickstart My Heart. Shout of the Devil. Wild Crew Songs. Yes. Friday the 13th. Halloween. Nightmare on Elm Street. Horror movies. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Slasher films. Yes. Um, Scooby-Doo, Hong Kong Fooey, The Real Ghostbusters. Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Captain Caveman, The Schmoo, Super Friends. Jeez. Uh, cartoons with characters that you talk. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Saturday morning cartoons. We needed to hear that Saturday I was overthinking morning. it. I was yeah. overthinking it. Oh, it was so close. You did good. Slasher movies. I'm glad you got that one. And, uh, and you had to say the word hospital, which you did right away. So that was good. No, no you did good. But you, you didn't win the $100,000, but you can still buy me a beer on Saturday okay, when yeah. we meet up. Because we are going to get together this weekend, so it's going to be yep. great. But before we do that, we got to figure out what we're going to do on our next podcast together. So how about we come back with a movie review next week? Uh, sure, sure. What do you? What, I mean, I picked Black Panther, which you didn't care for. So, uh, well, why don't I turn we, it over to you? When you? Let's just keep with our theme, obviously, for this year on the podcast. We got to go back and find a movie celebrating a major milestone anniversary. I want to mm-hmm. go back thirty-five years to nineteen eighty-eight. And the thing is, you know, yes, I, I know all these old movies and stuff, but there's still some old movies from Gen X that I haven't seen. Sometimes they surprise you. But I'm going back to nineteen eighty-eight. I want to see a movie that I have never seen. So I'm interested in watching this wow, movie. Wow, okay. And that's Beetlejuice. You've never seen Beetlejuice? Never seen Beetlejuice, wow. if you can believe it. Yeah. So I think it might be interesting to watch that one and come back here and uh, and review it. So I, I've always wanted to see I know my wife has seen it, and, and, and I mentioned it to her. She's like, you've never seen Beetlejuice? Nope. So this is an opportunity to watch it. 
and review it. So what do you say? We'll come back next time. You've obviously seen Beetlejuice. I've seen it a bunch of times. And this is a good this is a good time of year to watch it, right? We're coming into Halloween. Yeah. It's probably going to be on TV. So set your PVR if you uh, if you don't have access to a copy of it. But uh, no, I've seen it probably a dozen times. It's, I enjoy it a lot. But uh, there's a lot to talk about it. So. Yeah. yeah. And I and I really like Michael Keaton and stuff. So yeah, I think it should be good. So uh, we'll come back and we'll, we'll review Beetlejuice on our next show. But until then... I'm Chris McBride, that's Derek Myers, and we both are saying thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to listen to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 